The epistle is taken from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without result. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motive, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ we could have asserted this, our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing, nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Please stand for the gospel. The Holy Gospel is written in the 10th chapter of the Gospel according to St. John, beginning at the 11th verse. Glory be to thee, O Lord. I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Thanks be unto thee, O Lord, for this thy holy Gospel. Lord, may your word live in us. Bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. <clears throat> this morning is the second <clears throat> in our series on 1 Thessalonians. And we're going to learn something very important about our lives from the Apostle Paul, even if none of us are apostles. Today, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, you heard them read a moment ago, a deeper integrity. As we heard last week, 1 Thessalonians is one of the earliest extant 
letters of Paul and possibly of the New Testament writings themselves. It was written in the second half of the year 50, a short time after Paul had visited Thessalonica, that flourishing provincial capital of Macedonia in North Greece. He'd proclaimed Christ and founded the very first Christian community there. But only after three weeks or so, he'd been forced to abandon them due to violent opposition and head south. As you'll hear more fully in a couple of weeks' time, Paul became quite anxious about those he'd been forced to leave behind. Would they survive? Was it all for nothing? It got so bad that he finally sent one of his team back up north to Thessalonica to find out what had happened. It was good news. They were all right. Despite everything, the fragile, brand-new Christian community was still flourishing and hanging in there. And now he's writing back to them with relief and thankfulness. Last Sunday, we looked at the very first chapter in which Paul expresses his warm thanksgiving for them as he remembers them in his prayers. There, the focus was upon how they had responded to Paul's words. And as we heard, it was a quite distinctive and positive response that had become well known amongst the Christian communities in the whole area. I quote from verse 8 of chapter 1, The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, that's north and south of Greece, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now we move to the second chapter where the focus shifts to what Paul did during his short visit in Thessalonica. He begins in verse 1. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results, literally was not in vain. And then he reminds them at some length how he had behaved during his time with them. You may wonder why Paul goes over what presumably his readers already know. But presumably, remember, Paul had been forced out of Thessalonica by violent opposition not only to his message, but to himself. We don't know what exactly the opponents said about Paul to the Thessalonian believers once he'd gone, but no doubt it would have been extremely damaging to his character and motives. This guy's a crook. He cares nothing about you. He is dishonest. He's peddling this rubbish just to get you to make a big deal of him. Stuff like that. Now, despite this, and to Paul's great relief, he's now just heard the good news from his team member, uh, to quote 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 6, you always have pleasant memories of us, and you long to see us, just as we long to see you. Close quotes. They did not give up on Paul, nor on Christ, for that matter. And yet, it seems as though the apostle may be still quite shaken up over what had happened. 
And so he reminds them of the truth of what really happened when he was with them, just to make things clear. After all, mud does stick. And he tells quite a story. There are two great themes. One is what you might call the theme of Paul's great courage, although that's not the word that he would use. The other is Paul's deep affection for the Thessalonians. Together, brought together, they add up to what our sermon's about this morning, a deeper integrity. Now, we're neither apostles nor in Paul's situation, but we can clearly learn from his example. Firstly, then, Paul's great courage. He begins by reminding them of the circumstances of his arrival in Thessalonica. I quote from verse 2. We'd previously suffered and been out treated outrageously in Philippi. It had been rough. The outrageous treatment in Philippi, a town to the east, included being stripped, given a, receiving a severe beating with rods, then thrown into prison overnight. And Paul soon faced further aggressive opposition once he arrived in Thessalonica. You might think it'd be enough to make anyone throw in the towel and give it all away, but not Paul. We'd, quote, we'd previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. We dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. Why? Why keep on going like this? Well, it's all a matter of motive. Why was he doing this? going to all the trouble, literally. Verses 3 and 4 have the answer. Quote, For our appeal that we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. Those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, we are not trying to please the people but God who tests our hearts. He speaks not to get something out of them or from them. He speaks purely because God's approved him to have this trust that with, the, with the gospel. Later he's called a number of places the gospel of God, God's gospel. What is that? Interestingly, the word, the word gospel euangelion in Greek, is not originally a particularly religious or Christian word, though it soon became one. It means something like um, great news or news flash or grand announcement, good news, something like that. The word was used in Paul's time of announcements of happy or important events, especially concerning the emperor. As one writer puts it, quote, the essential content of a gospel in the ancient world, an historical event which introduces a new situation for the world. That's a gospel. An historical event which introduces a new situation for the world. Now, what Paul has been entrusted with is the gospel of God, God's grand announcement about an historical event which introduces a new situation for the world. 
And at its heart of this gospel of God is the announcement that God has raised the crucified man Jesus from the dead. And this means he is Lord and God's son who will come from heaven to judge and to save. God's kingdom or sovereignty over his world is at hand. That's God's gospel. Now, we have no idea today how shocking this must have sounded to some of Paul's hearers. New Testament scholar Tom Wright explains it this way, and I quote, an old, rather unpleasant joke used to go the rounds about someone who had been to see God, and on returning declared, she's black. Something of the same shock was felt around the pagan world of late antiquity by the declaration of the good news that went something like this. We have a new Lord of the world. He's a crucified Jew raised from the dead. Ridiculous, offensive, scandalous. Just what you'd expect from a new worldview, end of quote. And that's what Paul was explicitly entrusted with as an apostle, that gospel of God. And because God has entrusted Paul with his gospel, what are Paul's motives when he speaks? To please our people? No. Get something from them? No. A cover for greed? No, no. To please God, who tests the heart. If God gave you that responsibility, that trust, then it's God to whom you aim to please in discharging the responsibility. Especially God, Paul writes, who tests the heart. Now, living to please God who tests the heart is a big theme in Paul's writings. You'll find it all through his letters. It's a big part of his own self-understanding. And not just for him. In a few weeks' time, we'll find that Paul expects his Thessalonian converts also to make living to please God the key motive of their lives. Live to please God who tests the heart. And that, of course, is the great energy behind deep integrity. This emphasis upon seeking to please God who tests the heart is another one of those moments that we talked about last week where a profound cultural change was being unleashed on the Greco-Roman world by the gospel of God. Let me explain. Today we take it for granted that inner motivation is important for people, at least in the West anyway. That inner motivation is important. That, that our hearts are important. Authenticity is given the highest value today. Now, in the Greco-Roman world of Paul's day, it was nothing of the sort. There, the quest and love of honour was the worthy motivation, not authenticity. It's what's out there, not what's in here, was valued in Paul's day. Now, the change from what we today take for granted to that, from, the, from what was the Paul's world, is another one of those long-term impacts of what I called last week the depth charge of the gospel under the Greco-Roman culture of the classical world. Only today, 
We've kept the heart, but we've forgotten the God who tests the hearts. And so all we're left today in our culture is inner authenticity as the big thing by itself with all the trouble that that brings. So that's the first of our two great themes. I began by calling it Paul's great courage, but we can see now that's not the right word at all. It's Paul's great clarity that marks his boldness in declaring God's gospel in the face of strong opposition. Clarity of his motive, clarity as to seeking to please God who tests the heart. Profoundly important. The second great theme is Paul's affection for his readers, his emotional openness to them. This also is remarkable. Often, in fact, people who are powerfully inner-motivated, like Paul was, are those who don't often connect well with other people or are not open to other people. After all, they don't need them. But Paul is both strongly self-defined, that is, he doesn't look to others for approval, only to God who tests the heart, and yet he's very deeply other people-focused as well. He is strongly connected. He has deep affection for his readers. The bit, this is best seen in the beautiful language of verse 8 of chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. He writes, Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, our very selves. We are delighted to share with you, because we love you so much, not only the gospel of God, but our very selves because we love you so much. Paul is not only motivated to please God, who tests the heart, but motivated by his love and affection for the Thessalonian believers. He shares not just the gospel, he shares himself. One way this is shown is the way Paul goes out of his way not to be a burden on them. Although, as he says, he could have made demands as an apostle of Christ, Christ, and he writes in verse 7, quote, we were like young children among you. Or was it, we were gentle among you? Different copies of 1 Thessalonians have got one word or the other. There's a confusion of which is original. And in Greek, there's only one letter difference. Babies, nepioi, gentle, epioi. Either the N was added or taken off. <laughs> which is original? Well, it's hard to tell. And it doesn't really matter much, as long as we grant that babies can be gentle. Paul's point is, he didn't come here to Thessalonica playing the big man, the big Mediterranean man. No. He cared for them, quote, just like a nursing mother cares for her children, unquote. And one way he wasn't a burden, which is particular to Paul, quite an obsession of his actually in his letters, is his practice, as far as possible, to support himself with his trade. We learn from Acts that he had a trade and it was tent making, leather and, and, and canvas work. And he did that as well as, as doing the churches. As he writes in verse 9, surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden on anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. 
And then importantly, Paul reminds them, he's able to remind them, and even invoke God as a witness of his exemplary behavior in his time among them. Verse 10, you are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. Because, and if you can bear a switch of parental image, verse 11 and 12, for you know that we dealt with you each as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Paul was not a burden, but he did exercise parental authority. With the authority of a father over his children, bringing them up. It was authority in encouraging them, comforting them, and urging them to live lives worthy of God. There we are. You'll notice, by the way, not in order that they may be right with God or saved, but because God is calling them into his kingdom and glory. The gospel of God announces God's kingdom and glory, that is God's coming sovereignty and glory in Christ, and those who believe that gospel are called to be part of it, to share in it. And so now they live lives worthy of God. Please God who tests the heart. That's the second of Paul's aspects. And the take-home? It's pretty straightforward. We might be no apostle entrusted with the gospel of God in the way Paul was. We might never have been anywhere near Thessalonica. But the two great themes of Paul's ministry can serve as beacons for our living as deeper disciples of Jesus. Live to please God who tests the heart. Be open in your love to others, especially fellow believers. Later in the letter, Paul's even going to write, as we'll hear in the sermon then, he tells his readers to live lives pleasing God. And what's the very first way they do that? Love one another from the heart. Live to please God who tests the heart. Be open in love to others, especially for the believers. Both. Both. A deeper integrity.